Hi, what the health tech listeners. I'm your host this week, Karina Plant. This is the podcast where we tackle some of the trending topics, ideas, and best practice in health and social care. This week, I'm joined by Marion Shipman and Nikki Mantle Cooper, who bring a wealth of experience and insights from their roles at Northwest Surrey Integrated Care Services, also known as NICS for short. NICS is a prominent player in the world of GP federations, and they've been at the forefront of transforming primary care through technology-driven innovations, including Radar Healthcare. Now, just to give a little bit of information about the people joining me today, Marion is a registered nurse and former midwife with over 40 years experience in healthcare, having trained in New Zealand and Australia before moving to the UK. For the past two years, she's been the head of quality and governance at NICS. Marion has a rich history in clinical practice and healthcare commissioning, and even undertook published midwifery research before moving into areas of quality and governance. She has led the implementation of quality management and risk systems in acute and mental health services, and since joining NICS, has led the implementation of Radar Healthcare's quality and compliance system. Nikki is a GP and the current medical director for NICS. With over two decades' experience, she's been GP partner, trainer, and worked in healthcare system leadership. Nikki has worked as a planned care clinical lead at the CCG, which is for the former healthcare commissioners, and played a vital role in triaging GP referrals to secondary care. When primary care networks, also known as PCNs, were developed, she established and worked as the clinical director for her PCN, Coco. Recognising the potential for GPs to work at scale, enhance patient care and alleviate GP workloads, Nikki co-founded NICS GP Federation with Dr Caroline Baycott in 2016. It has since grown to over 280 staff and offers a range of vital services. So thank you very much for joining us today. Right, just to kick things off, can I start with you, Nikki, first, please? And could you start by giving our listeners a brief overview of what the GP federations are and how they fit into the broader healthcare system? Yes, well, just to put things in context, GP practice provides over 3 million, sorry, 300 million (laughs) patient consultations each year, compared with 23 million A&E visits. A year's worth of GP care per patient costs less than two A&E visits, and we spend less on general practice than on hospital outpatients. For the last decade, funding for the hospitals has been growing at twice the rate that it has for GP services. So GP federations provide GP services at scale. They're made up of a group of GP practices and primary care networks, PCNs. We have 38 individual member practices in Northwest Surrey, grouped into 10 PCNs, covering 385,000 residents. And Nix is like an umbrella that sits on top of this and supporting these practices and PCNs and providing high quality, innovative GP services at scale. Federations can also provide finance and HR support for PCNs and a strong governance structure. For NICS strategy, we have four overall priorities, supporting practices, improving access and equality of care for all our patients, and supporting our staff to improve the way we work for consistently excellent care and partnerships, building new and strengthening existing ones. As a federation, primary care can have a strong voice at system level. It's much easier to have a shared voice and plan and develop local services with other providers such as community services, acute trust, mental health, as one organisation rather than 38 individual practices. 
And we can also provide more specialist services locally, such as our respiratory hubs, providing spirometry or pheno, and the dermatology photo hub for suspected skin cancer, working with our dermatologists at our local hospital. Thank you very much for that. Um, so, Marion, can I move on to yourself now, please? Just drawing on from your experience with the tech implementation, specifically including radar healthcare as well, how has the shift from your manual processes transformed into quality and governance at NICS? So, uh, when I joined NICS uh, two years ago, um, one of my first tasks was really to have a look at the quality and the governance structures within the organisation. Um, and it, uh, that gave us really a foundation for understanding how we were reviewing quality and governance issues. What we identified was that actually there was a lot of information we were collecting, but not necessarily um, in a very helpful way. So we had lots of spreadsheets, we had lots of Word documents, and the data didn't necessarily enable us to be able to look over uh, a number of um, areas, so patient feedback, as well as uh, the information around staff, as well as our training. So the the issue that we had was very much about trying to find a way to give us a coordinated method to be able to look at our data. Thankfully, we had a really um, an appetite for looking at integrated quality and governance compliance systems across the organization. So staff wanted a way to be able to collect data in one place. Um, they wanted something that was less onerous in terms of how they collected that data so it didn't take as much time for them. And they wanted a way to be able to represent that data visually so that it was easy to see you know, what we were actually doing as an organization and how that could inform our services. So our staff um, saw a real need for that, but um, equally our senior management team did as well, which was really grateful for that. Um, and so we purchased um, Radar or we implemented it. And it, what it's done is to enable us through our quality and governance processes to really have that oversight of quality and governance issues. You know, everything from patient feedback through to complaints, through to uh, staff input um, through to our incidents that we have. So um, the system is really ha has enabled us to be able to, I guess, in that sense, transform how we use the data within our quality and governance processes. Um, and really, it's part of a journey because there's still a lot that we're doing um, and a lot that we need to do. Um, the data informs not just our quality and governance service meetings, but our integrated governance committee and our board reports as well. So it's kind of all encompassing in terms of uh, how we're using the system. No, that's brilliant. Thank you. And just on that point where you've spoke about the board reports, if I could just come back to yourself, Nika, as a board member at NICS and someone who's had first-hand experience with the benefits of technology, how has the board reacted and what do they think to how it's impacted patient satisfaction? Well, Marion provides quality and governance update for our monthly board meetings, and which includes a summary of all the activities, incidents, complaints, safeguarding, 
infection prevention control and the patient satisfaction feedback, as well as our current risks. And, and these are presented in really easy to read graphs and tables, which the board find really useful. We also have an annual paper for each of the, the instance complaints safeguarding. And so themes can be analysed and discussed over time. And the bi-monthly newsletter for staff is also shared at the board. And the chairperson, Linda Roberts, was so impressed with this that she's shared it with the Northwest Science Alliance. And they're, they're keen to adopt a similar things. The patient feedback um, is, is always is very positive Um which is, is really nice. And we're able to feed that back to our staff as well so that they're aware of how well that they're doing. Yeah, I know the um, the newsletter you was talking about, because I know Mary and I obviously worked with yourself um, for your implementation. That newsletter works brilliantly because I know I've given it to that idea onto other customers because it's just a brilliant way of getting engagement when adopting new systems. And as we know, that engagement is quite crucial when you are implementing and adopting new systems in an organisation. So just for everyone else's benefit, could you please share what you've done at NICS and how capturing that positive feedback has had a morale-boosting effect on your team and what exactly has contributed to that? Yeah. I mean, I we'll, we'll do a double act on this one. Um, I, I think it's really important that everybody understands is that when you're putting in a new system, the, the engagement of everybody is across an organisation is really important um, in order to make sure that a system is is taken on board and used and, and adopted widely. Um, before we even started um, making the changes to the various modules and, and the work, there was a piece of work that we had to do across NICS, which was looking at the processes that we had in place and just checking as to whether they were fit for purpose, whether we needed to change them to to make those processes smoother um, in term, before we even looked at transferring things across to radar. And for that, we used our staff across the organization um, just to check things like our complaint processes, our incident processes. So that was really important. The other thing that we use when we were looking to set up um, the system is that we actually seconded uh, some uh, a member of staff from across uh, the organisation who was really good on IT, who helped us in the design. Um, and then we also managed to get staff in each of our services as uh, radar champions. So basically, they were the ones that we did some work around so that actually once we were live, if people had any questions about the system, then they could actually be the first point of call. I think for us in terms of capturing positive feedback, it was important to think about which modules we went live with first. So one of the first ones we went live with was, was the module of reporting excellence. Um, and that was in March 22, so that we could get feedback um, about really excellent work that our staff would, were doing. It was also, I guess, a way to be able to make sure that actually staff logged into the system um, so that we sent it out via the notices. Uh, and, and so that meant that staff uh, immediately uh, were engaging with um, the radar system. Um, we obviously also went live with, you know, the, the complaint feedback and the compliments as well. So we would have that. The, the That um, document that you were talking about, which was the, the Quality Matters document, 
actually started life um, as, as a radar staff update. And we actually, when we first implemented, um, had it out on a monthly basis. So we, we now do it um, from August this year, changed it to Quality Matters. So it's much broader, picks up or, or allows us to, to present not just radar information, but obviously the shared learning from our Surrey Heartlands um, prescribing to anything from NICE guidance. So it allows us to look at quality in a much more rounded way. Since we've moved on to radar, we have moved hugely. So we started off, I think, with about 35 feedback the first month in March. We now have well over 700 um, a month for our feedback from patients. So, you know, the what that enables us to do is to share with our staff um, about what patients are saying, not just about our services, but they'll often say things about, you know, Joe Blogs, you know, was really great on this service. And then we can pick that out from the feedback and pass that on to the member of staff. So not just using the compliments um, module that we've got, not just using the excellence uh, reporting excellence module, but also using the feedback that we get from patients where they actually physically name our staff. So I think it's been quite good for be able to feedback. Yeah. Yeah. It's really helped improve morale because people are often too quick to, to complain in the NHS and it and, and to, to get some positive feedback, particularly if, if people are individually named and to pass that on to say, actually, you are doing an amazing job, that people are really grateful, patients, relatives, everybody is delighted with the service that you've offered although everybody's really busy you've managed to make a difference to that person and we're getting that positive feedback both from the home visiting team it's not just that the the, the um, staff the gps also love that but that the first contact physio our acute illness clinics phlebotomy all across the service and i think that to be able to have that excellent so so we're getting that from the patients but also for for the staff to if somebody's gone over and above in their job done that little bit extra, helped out, to, to have that way of doing the excellence reporting as well, which all, uh, which comes to each uh, governance meeting so that the rest of the team can see which members of staff have really gone over and above and, and performed well, I think is, is, is again, really positive and really helping mor with morale. We also have people HR for our, for our HR and on there, there's a badge system as well. So again, people can highlight uh, senior exec team or, or, or management can highlight which staff have performed well and they can give them badges. So it's any way that they can get the positive <laughs> feedback to say you're doing a really good job in a really difficult time yes. in the NHS, I think is is, is really That's useful. And the excellent feedback, um, the excellence reporting module, we've set it up so that actually within a particular service, if there's really good feedback, that manager can also share that information with managers across NICS so that actually that that really excellent way of working or whatever it is that somebody's done that's really good can be shared more widely across our services. So, you know, it, it's not just within that particular service that it, it stays. So it's really good. Yeah, that are several of our cross different services and are quite flexible. So it's nice, to, yeah, nice for the other managers to know that an individual's done well just generally so yeah no that that's absolutely fantastic i mean it's like you say most of the time when people talk about feedback it is usually that negative and the complaints as opposed to the positive feedback that you get as well and it 
just goes to show and reminds everybody why they're actually in the job that they're in and the difference that they're making to people. So that's absolutely fantastic, the impact that it's had in your organisation. I know you touched upon the external feedback as well, saying that you was getting that direct from your patients and, you know, whether it was family, friends, etc. But could you shed some light on how triangulating that patient feedback is helping NICs with the CQC registration and quality assessments? Of course. So, um, I, I mean, it, we're all familiar with CQC, Chloe's, you know, our safe, effective, caring, responsive, well-led. And when not no different from any other health provider or any other organization that CQC registered in using things like self-assessment templates to check out how well we are at covering those areas. And we we have the radar inspection module um, which we're looking to use. So we we aren't using it yet, but in order to capture the information. But in terms of the new CQC inspection regime, they take their information or are going to take their information from a number of sources, including, um, you know, asking staff, you know, for feedback, asking patients and relatives and, and looking at other external feedback as well. So, you know, I, I mentioned before that we started off with our feedback system back in March of last year. And we had, uh, I've just seen my notes, we had 14 responses uh, in that first month. Um, and in September of this year, we had 723 responses. That's um, brilliant. What we've done in the last, um, I guess, six months really, is that for our home visiting service, often they're elderly patients. And so the relative may provide the feedback uh, after they've had an appointment. Or alternatively, the GP is also asked uh, to provide feedback. So we not only get the feedback from our patients, but we also get the feedback from our relatives and from our GPs um, as well. So that's a really rich way of us getting the feedback. I guess, you know, one of the ways that we've done is to use that information in put it to poster format. And we used it you know, when we had a recent GP event. So the GP event was with all of our 38 GP practices, um, and it included our commissioners, um, uh, and it allowed us to have huge posters for each of our services looking at the feedback that we were getting from patients and from our GPs. The patient feedback um, is really a hugely rich source of feedback. It enables us to provide summary reports on this back to our GP practices in addition to what we've used in posters. Um, when we had um, a, a, CQ, a virtual inspection of our acute illness clinics back in uh, last year, we were able to point to our patient feedback, um, which is sent out following an appointment um, to be able to link to the questionnaire. So we were able to point to that. And I, you know, Whilst we have, you know, 97, 98% really positive feedback, we are able to show how we use the feedback where there might be areas that patients have identified for us to be able to make improvements um, and to demonstrate how we can do that. So I guess one of the areas for that was 
um, at Ashford St. Peter's or St. Peter's uh, Hospital where our patients were saying to us, or we were we were noting that they were having problems trying to find the acute illness clinic, and they were saying that in their feedback. We found that they were actually turning up at the uh, St. Peter's site, uh, outpatients. And as a result of that, um, Ashford St. Peter's were able to put signposting in their own area. We were able to then do a video on how do you get to the acute illness clinic, which gets shared with our patients. Um, and um, our staff uh, then adopted the use of Bluetooth headsets for the phone calls. So actually, if they're away from the desk and the patient phones because they're having difficulty finding the site, they're then able to access uh, um, somebody to find out where they need to go. So, you know, the use of that data um, is really great for how we can improve our services. Um, and we were able to share information with our, our CQC colleagues for that. And I'm, I've got no doubt in terms of, you know, where we are for our quality um, as CQC registration, you know, because we've set up our quality and governance meetings to to look at all of the key areas that CQC will be looking at us around, um, it helps us to be able to, I guess, have that rounded view of where we are. And at the end of the day, you know, the, the quality that we provide isn't just something around a tick box for CQC. It, it really is about how we make sure that we provide the best services yeah. for NICS. Ultimately, at the end of the day, that's what we're looking at doing. We've also heard that NICS have made quite remarkable strides in reducing waiting times through collaborative efforts and just the nature of GP federations. There's a lot of teams that you're having to communicate between and collaborate with. Could you just tell our listeners about this and the impact that it's having on patients and the the kind of initiatives that you may have brought in through that collaboration? Yes, um, we work really closely with uh, our acute trust, Ashford St. Peter's, um, two two areas particularly. The Dermatology Photo Hub, well, this was initially set up for two-week rule or, or suspected cancer uh, referrals because the d demand was way out way out doing the capacity um, and now it's been rolled out to the routine skin clinic so patients are seen by uh, HCA within 72 hours of referral have a photo taken and a dermatoscopy image this is then read by artificial intelligence skin, al skin al analytics and if it's if it's deemed to be non-cancerous it is checked by a consultant dermatologist and then the patient is either booked into a routine skin clinic or they can be discharged with advice back to the GP. If it's felt to be more suspicious, then they're either booked into a face-to-face -face appointment with the dermatologist or they could be booked straight to have it removed if it's on the ear or the face to, to ENT or um, MaxFax. Um, so this is showing a discharge rate of about 23% and face-to-face -face avoidance rate of 41%. So it's really helping our dermatology colleagues to manage that demand and get the capacity, get the capacity back. We've also worked with Asher St. Peter's with our first contact physio service. Um, this allows our patients to be seen quickly and have an assessment with an experienced physio, who can then assess and provide exercises or when refer on to secondary care if needed. 
And this provides a one-stop service for our patients. And we've actually got um, a system where patients with lower back pain can book straight into First Contact Physio via the practice's website. So they don't even need to go via reception to get that appointment. So it really is First Contact. And we've shown that 70 to 75% are discharged from First Contact Physio without needing on referral into the hospital. So that's helping managing demand by the musculoskeletal team as well. And patients are seen very quickly and locally. Each with each PCN of our 10 PCNs will have a first contact physio for their practice to refer into. So patients are seen closer to home. And we're also using our patient feedback um, forms. And we've had very extremely positive feedback for patients really like this service. No, that sounds really good. And I think it's just that out of the box thinking of moving away from the traditional kind of appointments and contact and how you process those things. So it's quite innovative, really. And just speaking about innovations at NICS, I know we've covered various aspects on that, but I'd love to hear more about the work that you've done with the home visiting paramedics. So can you share how this service operates and its impact on reducing hospital admissions? Yes, we've provided a paramedic home visiting service for our patients that operates Monday to Friday, 9 to 7, with six paramedics doing visits a day. Practices can request a home visit for patients via Teams and our coordinator will book a home visit with a paramedic and then they're linked to the GP via Teams so the GP, uh, the paramedic can have access to the GP image records and it allows direct communication between the GP and the paramedic. Previously, GPs would do a morning surgery and then would have to go out and do visits probably about one, two o'clock in the afternoon in between their morning and evening surgeries. That means that they're getting to the patients late in the day. If they're needing admission to hospital, it, it, it can take a while to get them in via an ambulance and that they could arrive in hospital after five o'clock and then it's difficult for them to get the tests and investigations that they need. And it, it may be that they end up staying in overnight to get those tests done the next day. With our paramedics, people often ring in for a home visit fairly early in the morning if it's needed. So they can start being booked with the paramedic visiting from nine o'clock in the morning. That means the paramedics can go out, see and assess them, and then either they get, contact the GP and if they need further investigation or antibiotics or whatever, the GPs can provide that. But if unfortunately they do need to go into hospital, that can be arranged much earlier in the day. So people are getting into uh, the hospital departments, frailty units or, or ED earlier in the day, and then they can have those tests and things that they need to, which may mean that they can be discharged the same day without having to stay in overnight. Um, so we feel that it's really making a big difference. The paramedics can also link into our community and agent response team. So if extra equipment is needed or they need a care package, this can be provided. And again, we're trying to keep them out of hospital. Um, and the paramedics can go back and review them another day if they feel they need to as well. They can also take bloods and get those sent off to the hospital. And we're looking at ways for them to help with block catheters, and possibly um, DVT diagnosis as well. So we're, we're really expanding the service and trying really hard to keep our patients at home with that extra support rather than them having to go into hospital. I mean, it's really helped the GP workforce. It's the one thing that the GPs absolutely love about Nick, so they, they're not having to spend two, three hours at lunchtime going around and doing those home visits. And we've had really positive feedback from patients, families, and the GPs themselves as well. So we feel that this service is really working well and benefiting both the GP practices and the community. Yeah. It sounds like a great way of collaboration as well between the teams. And I know just from obviously the work that I do and just from a patient experience myself is sometimes it can be quite separate and a bit prolonged so I think that's absolutely fantastic work that you've done there with bringing 
those services together and collaborating there. So I know, Marion, um, me and you have probably had loads of conversations around risk quality and things and how we can use technology to <clears throat> help identify them with your services. Could you elaborate on how, when we spoke about transitioning to a more risk-based approach in identifying the service issues, on what that means and the advantages that that brings to the quality and governance within GP federations? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think um, having a risk-based approach to how you actually look at your services and how you look to develop your services is really about identifying where those gaps are or potential gaps or issues are that may be stopping you or preventing you now or in the future to be able to deliver the best of your services. And we use the the risk register on, on radar in order to be able to capture that uh, information or those risks and to look at what mitigation or actions we need to do to take action on them. I think one thing I'm aware of, and, and Nick will probably concur, is that we, we put risk at the really bottom of our agenda. Um, and it's often you finish your meeting or you're coming to the end of your meeting and it's the, the last thing that you look at. And it's kind of like a, a, a cursory look that you have have at what those risks are. And I guess my vision would be that actually using the risk register and identifying um, what the risks are as we've gone through our service um, performance information, because we look at that as well at our quality and governance meetings, and being a bit more proactive about what what may be preventing us or, or possibly going to prevent us from delivering the very best of those services, um, we could probably do more um, about that, I think, as we go forward. You know, it's one of those areas that's kind of a work in progress. We use the action plan modules on radar. So where we've got actions that come out of risk registers or indeed actions that we've identified from complaints or from incidents. And we use, we've begun to use those um, uh, to look at them specifically in our quality and governance meetings as well. So, so you know, we may not have something down as a risk on the risk register, by having those actions identified and following them up, it helps us to kind of identify the issues um, and ultimately at the end of the day to make sure that we can deliver the best services that we're able to deliver. So I think it's probably, I think, fair to say work in progress. Yeah, yeah definitely. So done a lot of work, but we've got more work to do. Yeah, I mean, you're always having to build and <clears throat> oh, got a bit of a cough today, I think. Um, you're always having to build and move and constantly evolve things. So it, it, I think it's it's always going to potentially be able to be improved along. And that's the the brilliance of healthcare really is that evolving nature. Now, I know we previously discussed the Quality Matters initiative before, um, but is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners around how it works and its role in supporting the delivery of quality within GP federations that we haven't previously mentioned earlier on in the podcast? I think I preempted this question by answering part of this earlier on. <laughs> you know, I've shared with you lots of examples that you can share with um, other providers who are, who are just starting out on their, their journey with radar. Um, I, I would say that it's a really good way to kind of capture 
lots of important information from our systems and show a, a really coordinated, um, show things together in a single document rather than, um, I guess, having lots of reports that people look at. So in a single place, you know, we have the key information. Um, we have OWLs yes. that we put in. We introduced okay. OWLs, organization-wide learning. So Ooh, we oh, I start. <laughs> oh, I know. And even OWLs. So we've started to use those to be able to look at um, either complaints or incidents or patient feedback to look at perhaps themes of issues. So we use DVT uh, recently where we had a complaint and an incident around management and then we were able to um, use the information from those to be able to identify how we made improvements uh, across the system. So using most updated guidance, as I mentioned earlier in the, the podcast, our, our commissioners from Surrey Heartland were able to share updated guidance with our GP practices. Um, and I think that, you know, we're trying desperately to to be able to use it as a mechanism for, you know, a one-stop shop. You know, there are lots and lots of um, newsletters and information that comes out. But for NICS, um, we're trying to be able to have something that enables staff across the organization to be able to see what are we doing? You know, where are the things that we could learn from? How well are we doing? Because we put patient feedback in, as I said. Um, and, you know, what is it that we need to be doing next? You know, what's coming up as well? So um, I think the owl is a, is a big yeah, win. It is, definitely. I can definitely tell you that I'm probably going to be stealing that bit of it as well because I know the whole, <laughs> like, when it was the newsletter before it changed to the Quality Matters, all my other organisations that I worked with, I used to suggest it as an engagement idea because it just worked so well. And like you say, it's it's that one-stop shop and it's simple. And it's something that doesn't really take a lot of effort but gives maximum kind of return on it. Um, but the owls, are, oh, I love that idea. So, But I know just from the other organisations I've worked with, the feedback, as soon as I've mentioned it, they've all said like how fantastic of an idea it is. So. I really, really do like that initiative. So I'm definitely going to be stealing that um, owls off you as well, Marion. <laughs> I think for us, part of it also will be, you know, we send it up via notices, but I think that part of it will be that we need to be better at printing them off. Some people aren't necessarily, if they're working, um, you know, they might have a five-minute break between patients, you know, and actually having the hard copy of it there to look at rather than having to log on and have I think it's probably yeah. what we'll do going forward as well. So, um, yeah. No, that's brilliant. Um, so I know you've shared a lot of valuable insights today. And my final question before we get into some of the fun stuff, just before we finish off, is where do you see the future of improving service quality and patient engagement heading, especially in the light of all the efforts that you've done to involve your service users and the strategies that you've discussed? I think for us, we've, we're are just about to get the build license for the analytics. So I think for us, part of what we are aiming to do is to get better at how we present the data mm -hmm. um, so that it's much more visual, much more 
quickly at hand. People don't have to run a report. They don't have to wait for, um, you know, somebody else to run a report for them. But I think having things in dashboard format visually, um, I think, will be the way forward for us. Certainly, you know, we've done an awful lot about how we present the data to be able to have that overview of information um, in the quality and governance meetings. But I think that having something that a member of staff could go into and just easily look at, um, they're not reliant on somebody else. So our, our senior admins, we're looking at data. We're just implementing the audit module at the moment. Um, and so one of the things I'm looking forward to is for us to be able to develop the dashboard so that they can see really easily what's due, what are the scores, where are the problems, what do they need to to progress. So for me, the big win would be the analytics yeah. for that. That's brilliant. Well, I'm sure that you've got plenty of plans and know exactly where you want to go with that, but definitely with the analytics. It's it's like you say, just making it so easy for people to access that information, and it's so that they're not wasting the time having to find the information. It's just there at the click of a button, really. Now, just before we wrap up, then at the end of each episode, we ask everyone to describe there what the health tech moment. So, we'd like to hear your weird and wonderful stories that you've experienced in the health and social care industry. So I was wondering if you could just maybe share one of those stories with us if you've got any. Yeah. So we've got, it kind of links to, well, it does link to to our services that, that we run. So um, we had, uh, we had an, in, it's a happy ending. I start off by saying it's a happy ending. So we, we had a, a, a patient who was seen by our home visiting service um, an 85-year-old gentleman who hadn't been feeling particularly well. Um, the home visiting service went in to see him and they weren't particularly happy with what he was, uh, you know, with his his vital signs and how he was looking and actually recommended that he needed to be seen up in the urgent treatment centre um, up at St. Peter's. At the time this happened and it was, you know, about 18 months ago, um, the ambulance service wait times were absolutely atrocious uh, for calls. And the family lived quite close to St. Peter's. So in fact, they opted to take him up to the urgent treatment centre themselves. He turned up in the urgent treatment centre and immediately collapsed in cardiac arrest as soon as he walked in the door. Our staff were able to resuscitate him. He went into hospital and obviously stayed some time. But as a result of being seen by the home visiting service, coming in and being treated um, at the urgent treatment centre so quickly and promptly, um, he survived. And he went home to spend Christmas with his family. So that's our 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 example of how the services operate really well with a good ending. No, that's brilliant. And I'm so glad for the happy ending as well. <laughs> I'm glad you said that at the beginning because <laughs> I would have been like, oh, it's a bit of a sad story. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week, Marion and Nicka. And thank you to you all for listening. 
Join us in a couple of weeks for another brand new episode. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. And if you have any questions for us or our guests, please email whatthehealthtech at radarhealthcare.com. Thank you.